This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. Welcome to the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, where we examine the financial and business news from around the world in what was a week where markets have been dominated by politics, whether the remarks of a singular Chinese official or plans to suspend the Parliament of the United Kingdom. I'm Nick Howard, and joining me for our own meeting in the studio is Oanda's Senior Market Analyst, Craig Arnhem. Craig, good to have you here. Let's kick off with those market-moving remarks um, from China, which have really seen something of a, um, a fillip to the, uh, the markets at the end of the week. Yeah, it's quite surprising. It seems that when people want to be optimistic, they'll find any reason to be. These comments don't strike me as being any different from anything we've heard from China, the US or anyone else before. We want to talk, we don't like tariffs, and we'd like to resolve this without the need for any further down the road. Uh, It doesn't really resolve anything, though. It doesn't mean that we're seeing face-to-face talks. It doesn't mean that any of those issues that have held things up until now have actually changed. But investors want to hear this kind of language. For me, it's a lot of hot air. But ultimately, as long as the lines of communication are open, we've got to remain somewhat optimistic. The problem I find is that we've not quite yet reached that point where either side is desperate for Trump. That would be if the markets are falling, if his polls are falling ahead of next year's election, um, if the data is starting to show up, if the unemployment report is starting to look a little bit soft. Um, for China, of course, it is GDP. Uh, but we're not hitting those points yet where their desperation is kicking in. So I feel like neither side really has that incentive to move. The pressure is going to come on ahead of the election in the US next year. Donald Trump obviously doesn't want to lose his base as he goes into that. What is the importance of that from the Chinese side? The importance is simply that I feel like if they can move past Trump, if they can unseat Trump, I think they feel like they'll have an easier time on the negotiating side, not just because they feel they may be able to get a few wins, but they may feel like certain issues aren't as important to a Democratic uh, candidate than it may be to Trump. And let's be honest, his team are very hawkish. The John Boltons of this world were known hawks uh, towards China for a long time, not just China, Iran, etc. So I feel like if they they believe if a Democrat can actually win the next election, they may actually have a much easier negotiation on certain topics. So would you actually expect tougher tariffs and tougher trade um, skirmishes in the run-up to that election on the basis that it could unseat him? I I would suggest that the Chinese are going to be watching a lot of the same things that Donald Trump's going to be watching and hoping that their data suggests that their tactics are working. If it suggests that they're not working and we're talking about we're months away from an election and his polls are doing well, the stock markets are holding up and uh, and everything else is looking rosy, then they may start to change their tune because they're realising that they're going to be negotiating with the same man who's got four, uh, four years or so left in term. So I think it, it's going to be an interesting few months. I just don't really see the incentive for me, the side, to really wrap this up before Christmas. And let's be honest, when we've been talking about this a lot in the past, a lot of people have been hoping that common sense will prevail. No one wants to see an economic slowdown be it in the US, China, or globally. Well, what we're now seeing is Germany is at risk of recession, Singapore's at risk of recession, Hong Kong's at risk of recession. Uh, the UK contracted in the last quarter, but I don't think that was really trade war related. But we are seeing a slowdown in the US and China as well to a much less extreme extent. But there has been no real determination from either side to compromise on certain issues. Clearly, they are focused on their own domestic agendas. And if other countries do suffer the consequences because they are open trade dependent economies, then so be it. That is a a sacrifice that they are willing to make. But at this moment in time, I feel like China believes that do you know what? They're in control of their economy more than others are. They have control of central bank policy. They can let the 
currency depreciate if need be of of course not a too rapid a scale uh, they can they have control of some of the large main uh, the large banks the large institutions and therefore they 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 can see this out a little bit longer um and the US feels the same and the rest of us are just going to have to take that one on the chin and that means that this side of christmas we may not see that positive resolution that we want we do like to hear these positive positive comments. Though. So the rest of us along for the ride there. Let's move across to the UK where this week uh, Boris Johnson has um, given his plans for proroguing suspending Parliament for the longest period since the uh, end of the Second World War. We saw the pound take a tumble on that news. What's actually going on away from the politics? Well, away from the politics, I mean, firstly, I must say proroguing is the worst word, uh, worst term I've actually heard come from Brexit. And I hate Brexit as a term. But having to say proroguing on a regular basis is actually far more difficult than I realised it was going to be. Um, I, yeah, I mean, away from the politics, I don't think too much has changed. I think a lot has been made of comments that have been that have come from Angela Merkel, uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, during their meetings. They've effectively said what they have in the past, uh, but they've just not been as harsh maybe in their rhetoric. They're very aware that it's two months until the UK potentially leaves without a deal. They don't want the finger of blame pointing Brussels' way. Uh, they don't want to incentivise uh, any other um, any other nationalist parties within any other countries within the bloc uh, to leave. They don't want to be seen as these hardliners who are dictating countries' uh, agendas. Uh, but So they've softened the language, but the message is still very much the same. The backstop remains, unless you give us a viable alternative that is actually implementable at this moment in time. Um, and there isn't anything at this moment in time which they believe can be implemented. If that changed, then of course they would change their tune. Um, they had, they'd have no reason not to change their tune. The problem is this idea of technology, etc., uh, alternative arrangements, it's a good idea in theory. It may be a good starting point, but until Boris can prove that it's actually functionable then I don't believe their position is going to change. That obviously leaves us in a rough position now for the next two months, though, because really the backstop is designed to prevent a border appearing either in Ireland between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland or between the Republic of Ireland and the rest of the EU. Uh, in no deal, that is going to happen anyway. So this is, in many ways, a political case of who blinks first. And at this moment in time, Boris Johnson very much wants the EU to believe that he's not blinking and by proroguing Parliament... He's very much sending that message. And what about the impact of these kind of uh, political tactics on how the UK is perceived? So looking at how headlines across the world represented the uh, the move by Mr Johnson, um, obviously in Europe it didn't go down well, I'm thinking of in France and Germany, but even further afield in Russia, in Iran, it was seen as a, um, or presented by journalists as a, an attack on UK democracy. Does that actually undermine anything about the UK in the long term? I guess ultimately it depends how it turns out. We do have a lot of these kind of populist tactics, populist leaders appearing around the world right now. So I don't think if, if this was 10 years ago then this and this was an isolated uh, leader, then I think it would be more highlighted and it'd be more shocking. But it seems that everywhere we turn right now, whether it's Trump in the US, Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, Erdogan in Turkey, Putin in Russia, the, these figures who are using unconventional tactics in order to get what they want, um, it's become less uncommon and therefore I, I'm not sure if there's going to be neg negative longer term consequences, if I'm perfectly honest. But again, that depends on how successful this is. The best way to defeat these kind of tactics is to prove that they don't ultimately work. Uh, I, I always say that populism in itself is an exercise in providing simple answers to complex problems um, and proving that that works. Well, if you can prove that that doesn't work, then you effectively undermine the entire um, justification for populist politics and what Boris is 
taking now, the, the route he's taking is the populist approach. And the EU now has to make a decision between does it want to preserve the border in Northern Ireland? Who is going to ultimately be blamed? And does it want to bow down to these types of measures or be seen to be standing up to these more uh, aggressive tactics? And again, it's not an easy it's not an easy solution. It's not an easy problem that we've got on our hands right now. Um, and I think the EU is very much wary of the fact that its own reputation is uh, is being uh, very much abused by many people around the continent, which is why we are seeing these populist uprisings. Let's take another one of those um, populist governments, move to Italy, another complex problem where simple solutions are being presented. We've seen the um, coalition between uh, the Five Star Movement, what I would say is a, a populist, perhaps even nihilist um, group of far left and far right ideas and the much more far right um, group of the Northern League, that coalition splits and we now have um, potentially a new government there. That is actually being greeted by investors. Talk me through that. So it's being greeted by investors because uh, for two reasons. One, it means that we avoid an election in the autumn. We're talking uh, October, November time is when this election would take place. This is also the time when Italy has to put forward its budget to Brussels. We remember last last year there was a long skirmish between um, Rome and Brussels because of the type of budget it was pushing forward, the fact that it was asking for a much larger fiscal deficit, and there was the back and forth between these this populist coalition, um, both of whom in the past have very much shown strong uh, op uh, opposing views to Brussels uh, and obviously the European Commission. Now this looks like a much uh, nicer version of that. You've removed the far-right element in the League Party. We've got a Democratic Party who is a centre-left party um, who look uh, now looking to go into coalition with the Five Star Movement. And for one, you've got an agenda, a domestic agenda, which is probably going to be much more aligned into, in, in terms of how they want to spend the money, how they want to boost the economy. So from that perspective, that could help reduce the deficit on that side. But also, uh, I think there's this idea that by bringing a kind of mainstream party, it may smooth the lines as well uh, with uh, Brussels. The difficulty that obviously this does pose, uh, which the markets are choosing to look past at this moment in time, is this is two parties who historically, uh, and when I'm talking historically, Five Star Movement hasn't, last, uh, hasn't existed that long, but has previously been very hostile towards each other. Uh, the Democratic Party, while being to the centre-left of politics and probably therefore more attuned, in tune with what the Five Star Movement stands for, it is still a beacon of the liberal elite that the Five Star Movement is very much opposed to. So there is going to be those difficulties with it. And that's assuming this coalition actually forms because the Five Star Movement um, uh, group still have to actually vote online uh, on this actual issue and they may still go against it. Sure, so the members get a um, opportunity to actually have a say on the direction of the party. You've mentioned obviously the instability of Italian politics in the past. Um, I guess at the moment, what does this actually mean for the EU as a whole? Because we're moving into a new period of um, you know, new government in the, uh, the Commission, new um, uh, leaders of the, uh, the European Council. Do you have any sense of how you feel that Europe might actually change over the next couple of years? It's an enormous question, I know. Yeah, uh, not not an easy question for a Friday afternoon. I feel like this, in the European Commission's eyes, in many of the Europhiles' eyes, this is a storm that they need to weather. Um, we look at Emmanuel Macron, he's very much trying to take over the mantle of leadership from, uh, from Angela Merkel, who has effectively been a uh, de facto leader of, of Europe for the last decade or so, especially given the number of changing governments we've seen elsewhere. Um, Macron is very much trying to take over that, given that she is uh, on her way out. Uh, and he is very much a strong Europhile who 
I do believe that it sees this again as a storm that they need to weather. The problem is that we are seeing the rise of populist parties and almost the, this, is, this is being generated by this, um, this approach that we've seen from Brussels for, for some time, this kind of we're right, you're wrong approach. Um, and I think this is why I do believe they are taking a bit of a softer approach, for example, with how they speak uh, in the media with regards to Brexit. We've seen it in the past. It's kind of been portrayed as like this is just Britain being stupid. This is their mistake and they need to suffer the consequences of it. Well, this that's actually being used as bait for many of the populist uh, parties uh, across Europe, this idea that the Brussels imposing its view and its will uh, on uh, a group, a, a sovereign country. Um, and I, f I feel like maybe Europe is starting to learn a little bit from that. But I don't think it's going to change its longer term ideology. But maybe this is just going to have to see a pause uh, within that transition towards it because things have moved fast uh, over the last couple of decades. And that's probably been part of the problem, which has led to this na nationalist uprising. Right. Let's look ahead to next week where we're back from the summer break into September and we're starting to see more economic data coming out. We are. Uh, thankfully, we can talk about something other than politics. Uh, the politics has really dominated this summer. Um, it is an interesting time, so there's, there's no harm in that. But I think we are going to start to see a bit of a normalisation um, in many ways in markets, more focus on the central banks and what they're doing, although politics very much gets pulled into there as well. But next week, we've got the US jobs report, that, 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 that old favourite that seems to have slipped off the radar uh, somewhat. Um, so we've got the jobs report to come on Friday. I think that's going to be quite closely monitored. I don't think there's going to be anything too shocking there. Um, I think we have to see a, a deterioration in the data much more than we've seen at any point so far. And the jobs report, we have to remember, it's a bit of a lagging indicator. It's only when everything starts to, starts to go bad that you start to see the unemployment rate, for example, ticking up. And at the moment, that's still at, at what, 50-year lows in the US. Um, so even a couple of week jobs report figures I don't think are going to shake markets too much. So I think feel like it's not necessarily got the same importance, for example, I guess is what I'm saying, than it once had. We've got two, uh, two uh, central bank meetings next week, which could be of interest. Um, so we've got the Bank of Canada, uh, which isn't expected to change interest rates anytime soon. They're actually one of the few central banks who are not looking at interest rate cuts at this moment in time. And then you've got the RBA, who's cut interest rates a couple of times uh, over the last three or four months um, and are expected to cut interest rates again this year. Not uh, at this meeting next week, but that's where the communication really comes becomes key from the central banks because there's not many months of the year left. So people want to know exactly when they're planning to cut interest rates, how many times they're looking to cut interest rates and uh, what we have in store for next year. And again, it's always the justification of the rate interest rate cuts as well. What is it that you see as the greatest threat? Because it's not just the, uh, as I said earlier, it's not just the US and China who are suffering as a result of this trade war. Many other countries are as well. And many other people are pointing to it as a reason why they are seeing domestic weakness. Craig, thank you very much indeed for that. That's Craig Earlham there, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda. I'm Nick Howard. This is the Oanda Market Insights podcast available from iTunes and all the many places where podcasts live. Join us again next week for more reaction and a look ahead to what could be a busy month ahead. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.